Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Hi, I'm going to introduce now the moderator of our next panel, Christina Bellantoni. She's the director of the USC Annenberg Media Center. She's a professor of professional practice at USC Annenberg, a faculty fellow at the Annenberg Center on Communication, Leadership, and Policy. And she's also a contributing editor with the independent nonprofit newsroom, The 19th News, which focuses on gender, politics, and policy. And she's been our partner going all the way back years ago to when she was at the Los Angeles Times as a brilliant political editor. Christina, take it away. Thanks, Bob. That's really nice. Can't wait to see you in person. Um, Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us this morning. I'm so excited about this panel. I respect everybody on it so much. And uh, I frankly care about a lot of the issues that we are going to talk about here today uh, very deeply. So I think we're going to have just a great engaging discussion. Um, This is 2021 insurrection, pandemic, and Biden's big agenda. And I'm really grateful to be joined today. All of us are grateful uh, to be joined today by Professor Anjmarie Hancock-Alfaro, the Dean's Professor and Chair of the Department of Political Science and International Relations here at USC. She is a globally recognized scholar of intersectionality theory. She also directs three research units at USC, the USC Institute of Intersectionality and Social Transformation, the USC Center for Feminist Research, and the USC Dornsife Center for Leadership by Women of Color, which is leading a study on the first Black and South Asian vice president, the Kamala Harris Project. Juan Rodriguez, thank you for joining us. He led California Governor Gavin Newsom's campaign to defeat the recall election and is a partner at Bear Star Strategies. He previously served as campaign manager for Kamala Harris's Senate campaign, was her senior advisor when she was attorney general here in California, and served as the director of state relations for the city of Los Angeles under Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa. Charlie Sykes, uh, anybody that watches television, uh, it's no stranger to the airwaves, um, both in your ears and uh, on TV. He is the founder and editor of Large of the Bulwark, host of the Bulwark podcast and an NBC, MSNBC contributor. He's authored nine books, serves as president of Defending Democracy Together Institute, and has one of Wisconsin's top rated and most influential conservative talk show hosts before he stepped down in 2016. And uh, we got to know each other when I was at the PBS NewsHour, and you were a frequent, important analyst there. Ben Tolchin is an award-winning pollster who serves as senior strategist for candidate and ballot measure campaigns, most recently serving as Bernie Sanders pollster during his presidential bid and Eric Adams' successful mayoral campaign in New York. He is the founder and president of Tolchin Research and advises, conducts research, and provides strategic guidance for the California Assembly Democratic Caucus, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and has helped guide numerous statewide and local campaign initiative campaigns to victory. So this is a powerhouse panel, as you can hear. Um, I'm guessing everyone has thoughts about President Biden and how he's been doing in his first year in office. And I want to kind of start there. I'm taking a look at both the good and the bad. And I'm going to start with Professor Alfaro. I'm curious, you know, what are the president's biggest achievements in office and also fumbles? 
So thanks so much, Christina, and thanks to Bob and everyone uh, for having me. Um, I'm going to talk about two. Um, I think we could talk, and there's a long list of achievements, but there's also a long list of fumbles um, that we could talk about. And I'm going to talk about two. One is, I think everybody would say is, would agree on, and then one people might not be thinking of. So the first one in terms of achievements, um, I do think that even though it didn't happen on the time frame that it needed to happen, that, you know, there was this, we're going to do it by July 4th and everything else, I do think that there has been a tremendous amount of progress on the COVID-19 pandemic, right? In terms of vaccines, getting into arms and making sure that schools can reopen, I think People do kind of recognize that what happened over the past 10 months, Delta notwithstanding, um, actually did work in many ways. So, so I do think that there's some credit that can be offered to the Biden administration there. Um, here's the thing you might not have thought of. I think that the Delta variant was actually the best thing that happened to the Biden administration because they actually were able to see it was almost like what we call in social sciences a natural experiment. You could see the states that were taking things seriously and the states that were kind of taking a different line of attack. You had two completely different outcomes with what was happening in those states and people getting sick and kids having to cancel school and everything else. And so I do think that on the COVID-19 pandemic, even though the numbers have kind of gone around the bush, you know, in terms of polling, I think there's definitely this idea that that was a pro. The big fumble, of course, I think nobody would be surprised if I said Afghanistan, right? Um, I think Afghanistan was always going to be a fumble. I mean, I think that's the one thing I don't, I don't, I think if you had Jesus Christ himself, it was going to be difficult to withdraw from Afghanistan. But I think that was really, really a turning point that's had longer legs than certainly I anticipated. And uh, let's go to Juan Rodriguez. Hey, Christina. Um, thanks for you know putting this on at CUSC. Uh, happy to be here with everyone. I would, I would agree largely with those comments. I One, I think, additional point that I would make is I think we can have a really substantive conversation on a battery of issues that the Biden administration has had to deal with, starting from the kind of non-peaceful transfer of power and what they've had to do to kind of get up and running. And that's been, you know, I think history will indicate it is... Um, pretty profound what they've been able to accomplish. I think the biggest challenge I, you know, see, and you certainly saw this largely in Virginia, that there is a direct correlation with what democratic base turnout is ultimately going to be in the midterms um, with what they see the administration has done. And one of the big accomplishments really early on in the process was the American rescue plan. The problem and kind of my criticism really lies on there. They moved really quickly to deal with a lot of other issues, whether it was reconciliation or the infrastructure package that they just passed. And a lot of the accomplishments that the Biden administration could probably take credit for largely um, remain unclear to the overall electorate. And when you're beginning to have a conversation about what the impact of inflation is going to be on the electorate heading into the midterms, not addressing those really substantive points that I think you know, frankly, they still have an opportunity to address have been perhaps one of the biggest fumbles um, that we've seen already have a you know net negative outcome in Virginia. Ben, I'd love your take on this question, but also is that what you're seeing in the data that you're looking at of America right now? Yeah, look, I appreciate the opportunity to be here with all my esteemed panelists. I would say, look, I mean, the Biden administration, Joe Biden came into the presidency in a very difficult situation, uh, a very divided country. He's facing a 
uh, opposition party that's radicalized and extreme and completely intransigent and wants to destroy him by seeing him fail, which is horribly bad for the country. So he's coming. So he, you saw he didn't get a big bounce from his poll numbers after getting elected because you have basically 45 percent of the country that came in dead set against him. Uh, and obviously he came in into a very uh, it, you know, it, unprecedented event where this non-peaceful transfer of power happened. So he's basically got an opposition party that most of it endorsed uh, the overthrow of the government, right? So he's coming and he's tried to normalize the situation by just being a normal president. And so that that's, you know, one thing he's facing incredibly difficult challenges. He, you know, he, he won the presidency by being like, the, he's going to return to normalcy from Trump's chaos, right? And he was successful in that. The challenge he has in governing in that is he's facing an opposition party that, is as radicalized as, you know, basically since the pre-Civil War days, right? We're a, a party that basically wants to see the country fail at all costs. So despite that, he's done some important challenges, kept the country, you know, dealing with COVID and things like that. But he's got a severe headwind. And, you know, my view and advice to the Biden administration is he can't just be president. Like, returning normalcy isn't going to be good enough for his situation because he's got such an unprecedented situation uh, challenges facing him. He's got to take risks. He's got to be bolder in taking on the Republican Party, calling them out for being extremists that they are. He's got to find a boogeyman, which he, I don't think he's done yet, whether it's Trump or um, an extreme faction of the Republican Party, their war on truth, their war on science. Um, and he's, he's just got, I think he's got to be more of a take a war footing about the forces lying against against him or else he risks you know historically and we'll get into this in more detail i'm sure on this panel about what happened uh in virginia and new jersey and the other elections but historically the party in power is going to lose seats it's 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 it, 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 and what happened in virginia jersey it was in line with what's happened historically uh but how do how does biden change the trajectory of history that's what uh, the challenge he has facing him he's got to do some i, I might view some big bold aggressive things that he hasn't done so far. Yeah, and we're going to turn to what the debate is going to be on Capitol Hill or what it currently is uh, in a moment. But Charlie Sykes, your thoughts on Biden's biggest achievements and fumbles so far. So I'm going to follow up on what uh, Ben had to say, um, because, uh, you know, Biden's major achievement is that he rid the country of Donald Trump uh, on on the pledge of returning the, the country to normalcy. But uh, Ben's absolutely right. This is not a normal political universe. And this is kind of the challenge. There are some things that Joe Biden can control and some things that he can't control. And one of the things he can't control is the fact that uh, this year began with with a literal insurrection and a party that is increasingly comfortable with undermining democratic norms and supportive of a coup. So the question is, can you be a normal president during these very abnormal times? And this is going to be a challenge for Joe Biden because I think he's a fundamentally decent man. But I think that now trying to match the moment with the man is going to be a major challenge because, for example, I don't think that Joe Biden has been as effective a communicator as he needs to be. I think he's played the inside game pretty well. But the fact is that he does face these headwinds and he is going to have to tell the story. He is going to have to communicate. He is going to have to present a vision of the country that does counter this, uh, the, the extreme turn that the Republicans have taken. Um, I agree with a lot of the things that were said before coming I mean, clearly. Um, I think one of his successes is dealing with with the pandemic. I think he has had some bipartisan successes. But the reality is, is that Afghanistan, I think, undercut his image, um, at least in two areas. 
Number one, it's, it dealt a severe blow to the sense that he was competent. And number two, it dealt a blow to one of, a, I think, his main selling points, which was his, his empathy. I think he can recover from both of those. But I agree with Ben, you cannot underestimate the challenges that he faces in doing this. And I think that he's going to have to use this bully pulpit much more effectively than he has so far. And I think it would be a big mistake for Democrats simply to believe that passing large spending packages is going to solve all of the problems, because I think the rot in our political culture runs much deeper. And although, you know, they might like to think that sending out lots of checks and doing lots of good policy things um, is the big, bold answer to all of this, I wonder whether or not that really understands the toxicity of our current political moment. <laughs> not not super lighthearted stuff. You know, I, I want to pivot just a second to think about this. So something that propelled my own um, interest and career in covering national politics was the 2000 election. And that was sort of, for me, looked at as this big you know, change election. Then I proceeded to cover Washington, where it felt like literally every election after that was a change election. The American people starting to send a message we want something different. And I wonder as we approach, you know, one year from now in the congressional midterm elections, what we just saw in Virginia and New Jersey, where, where are we in this moment of like, how are the American people agitating for political change, you know, given that toxicity that Charlie Sykes just mentioned. And why don't I, I start with Juan Rodriguez, you were um, obviously working in New York, um, talked to a lot of voters there, but where you sort of see this moment as far as how people are viewing government and they want it to change. You know, I think Ben talked about it at the beginning, right? Historically, you know, in the midterm elections, they are change elections. And so we can, we have the predictors of precedent that indicate what is very likely to happen. Virginia, you can't, uh, you know, is a signal of what potentially could happen. I think um, the challenge is pretty clear, right? Unless we actually create um, an opportunity very similar to what we did in the recall and in waking up the Democratic base and making sure that there isn't erosion within the Democratic Party. One of the successes, I think, of the recall was there wasn't much of a, a debate once voters actually had ballots in their hand about whether it's between one Democrat or another and that fight on the ideological spectrum. It was really a binary contrast between what would be at stake in the middle of that election, what the governor's leadership had been during the pandemic, and what would happen if a Republican came into office. And I think um, that is going to be the challenge. I think there are a lot of growing frustrations amongst the electorate in terms of how they're going to analyze what the administration has been able to do and how successful they are. If if the Biden administration is ultimately successful in telling the story of their accomplishments and what they were able to get on the infrastructure plan, I think that will have positive attachment to democratic awareness and turnout. If the overarching theme is that prices are going up and inflation is not transitory, and that is the, the theme that plays out in the electorate, then I think um, we're going to be heading into what you know history is most likely predicted is going to happen in the midterms. And of course, sorry, I obviously had a brain freeze saying New York and when I meant to say California right here in our home state. It's also so interesting how the recall seems eons ago and it was just in September. Um, and, you know, obviously these elections we just had um, are on my mind and, and the next ones. Um, ben, I'll go back to you both for the question I just asked about the the change and the idea of this voters wanting change. But also I know you wanted to talk about Biden's need to communicate um, his message uh, in response to Charlie Sykes. Yeah, and they're, they're tied together, right? I think from my perspective, 
you know, how does Biden defy history, the, the historical trend? If you look at you know, past midterm elections that have defied historical trends, 2002, uh, we got attacked by terrorists in 9-11, and then we went to war. So that's one way to defy. I'm not saying that that's a recommended path, but those are circumstances that help George W. Bush defy historical trend. And then 1998 was the Republicans impeached Bill Clinton, and, and voters felt that they overreached. And so there was a, a pushback against that. So those are two kind of uh, Deus Ex Machina's huge external events that change kind of normal history. So if those don't happen, then how does Biden try to improve his stake? One is uh, the telling story. Charlie touched on this, but I've seen that consistently. And I saw that, look, I worked against Biden in the primary for Bernie Sanders. And look, Biden, Bernie won the first three contests. Biden lost the three badly because he struggled to convey a very clear economic message about how he's going to help improve the lives of, of, of everyday people, right? He struggled with that in the primary. He struggled with that in the general election, quite frankly. Uh, and he struggled with that as president. I, I, you know, he doesn't convey on a day-to-day basis how he's going to help make people's lives better. We saw that, honestly, I worked for Eric Adams, mayor of New York City. And it was very clear voters were telling us, what are you going to do for me? And Eric Adams won because he, his personal story, very compelling personal story of growing up, overcoming poverty. But then he had a plan. He was going to help people's lives on a day-to-day basis. And you look at the Biden agenda, the, the, the Build Back Better agenda that's mired in Congress right now. Uh, we've done a lot of polling on it and public polling has showed the two most popular elements of that bill are making the wealthy pay their fair share, closing tax loopholes on the wealthy and big corporations, especially the wealthy, and investing in kids through early child education, right? And so, so you have two very clear-cut popular elements that, by the way, the Republicans are against. Right. The Republicans are for tax cuts for the rich, letting the rich not pay their fair share in taxes, and they oppose investing in children. So you have a very clear comparative story. This was the success of the recall that Juan alluded to. They, they had a very comparative context that here's the record of Gavin Newsom and here's what Republicans will do if they get into office. And Biden now is kind of trying to be a normal president, just doing things and say, hey, I'm a great guy. I've returned things to normalcy. Oh, everything's great. But, you know, that's not enough. He has to tell a very compelling story about how he's going to help people on a day-to-day basis, which is, you know, his agenda allows him to do, but I don't think he's honed in on the specifics of his agenda very well. And he has not drawn a contrast clear enough with Republicans about why they're bad, what they would do, govern, they're stopping his agenda. And he can't just do a press conference once in a blue moon and and, and do normal events. He has to go to war with the Republican Party because they're at war with him. They want him to fail and they're willing to take down the country as a result. So that's what I think Biden needs to do to try to, change the, the historical trajectory and if he doesn't and it's hard i mean he's got headwinds so you have to kind of you can't just be a normal president if you want to defy the political historical trend lines professor alfaro i'd love your views on this you know uh, particularly the build back better agenda and you know this is possible uh it's going to get up for a vote next week obviously the democrats are, are pretty torn on on this issue and there's still a lot of negotiating happening how do you view this? And is this the message that, that Biden needs to be out there selling? Well, I definitely concur with both Charlie and Ben um, and Juan that, you know, the messaging is going to really matter over the next year, you know, up to the midterms. I want to point out, though, um, that there are some certain sectors of voters that, again, you know, Biden is really going to have to make sure he holds within the coalition, right, that got him elected. And I want to focus, not unsurprisingly, on some women voters, right, and just this whole exodus that has been going on of women out of the economy 
and into, right, because they cannot afford childcare or the other piece that I think is really, really important that, again, and this has fallen out of the bill. So that's why I want to make, draw this connection, right, that they have not just, you know, been able to keep that in, right? So it's not just that it's been taken out, but that structurally we have a number of what are called childcare deserts, right? So, so even if there was the money for childcare, for example, that was in the bill, how do we actually make sure that the structure of having providers who were absolutely have the capacity to do this actually work? And so I think that's another really important piece of this that those women voters who have had to exit the economy, who had careers that they enjoyed that were actually helping their families, right? How is he going to communicate to those women voters that I'm still the right person for this job, right? I'm still the person who can get this done when in fact it has not been done and he's had both houses of Congress and of course he's a Democrat as well. So I think that's a really, really big hill for him to climb, but he's going to have to climb it. And it's not just going to be him. He's going to have to figure out which surrogates are going to be able to deliver that message as well, you know, just because, of course, we're talking about women voters. Yeah, and I, I want to come back to Kamala Harris in a minute. Um, obviously, your research, and, and she is a central figure in all of that. This idea of the progressives versus the moderates and that Senator Joe Manchin and Senator Kirsten Cinema have so much power in this moment where these are like big things that could make or break the Biden agenda, um, from what I'm hearing from all of you. How do you all view these negotiations in Congress and how involved the president is and whether activist voters want to see action and, you know, just go as hard as you can on these progressive ideals or if people want to see Republicans and Democrats working together? I'll start with you, Charlie. Well, look, I I look at it from the outside and, uh, you know, a couple of things. Keep in mind how thin these Democratic margins are. I I think there was a disconnect from the beginning of the year with the ambition of the agenda and the fact that basically you're holding a pair of of threes in your your hand. You know, the the Senate is 50-50. They have, what, a a five-vote margin in the House of Representatives. And the reality is, is that that even though um, Democrats are very unhappy with Joe Manchin right now, Joe Manchin actually is closer to the heart of the Democratic Party than a lot of the other people that we talk about, because a majority of Democrats are actually moderates. Um, you know, when he talks about, you know, um, you know, some of the issues, you know, including including warning about inflation, he is not out of touch with a lot of the Democratic voters in swing districts. And I, I hope that people keep in mind that control of Congress as well as control of the Electoral College will be decided not by who wins in New York and California, but by who wins in swing congressional districts and in swing states. And there, it is going to be the moderates who will determine whether or not uh, the Democrats keep the the majority. I thought it was uh, incredibly unfortunate that you had this uh, game of political chicken going on uh, where you tied the two bills together um, and you pitted the perfect against the good. That, That long period where it looked like one faction or the other was going to kill the president's major legislative accomplishment because they didn't get everything they wanted. I think that's hurt the president. I think that's hurt the Democrats. I think that probably did play some role in what happened in Virginia. But also, it's meant that Democrats have not been talking to the country as opposed to talking to one another. One of the reasons why Americans don't know what's in that bill is because they've been caught up in this intramural debate. Should it be three trillion? Should it be two trillion? I mean, that's inside baseball when they should have been spending time talking about this is what we will do for children. 
This is what we will do for families. If you are a mother in the workforce, this is our provision here. This is our policy on rural broadband. Again, going out of the country and selling these specifics as opposed to this intramural um, circular firing squad that went on for a very, very long time. So I, I guess that's the big, that is the big concern. And I also think that I do want to go back to, I'm, I sort of keep playing off of Ben, but you know, you talk about the uh, extra, the extraordinary events that might change history. I can't help but think that, that on Earth 2.0, that a Republican party that was as extreme as this one, that has been as nihilistic, as obstructionist, as corrupt, as anti-democratic, as anti-woman, as anti-minority as this party is being would not pay a massive price at the polls. This is a party that is so far out of the mainstream that you would think that if the Democrats effectively were to hold them accountable for their behavior, starting with the attempted coup, continuing with their loyalty to Donald Trump, what's been going on in Texas involving uh, both uh, voting as well as a woman's right to choose. These are issues that could certainly turn the midterms around. And I think that you know, we, we talk generically about messaging, but the Democrats' failure to really pin that on the Republicans and make this a referendum on their obstructionism, if they spent one third of the time talking about Republicans opposing all of this and obstructing all of this as they do in beating up Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, we might be in a slightly different political environment. And now, now you're nodding. Yeah, I, I, Charlie, the Democrat Party <laughs> should hire you because you just framed a critique against Republicans, which you know I alluded to, which is that yeah. Biden needs to frame this as a comparison, a comparative choice. And you just did a better job than the Biden Democrat Party's done for the whole year. So thank you for that. <laughs> but one thing uh, I disagree with you on Charlie is the whole moderate progressive debate because. Look, the vast majority of the Democratic caucus is progressive. They are supporting the progressive. It, it is 12 moderates, corporate Democrats in the House who have been a problem both on the infrastructure and the social spending bill. And Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin are two holdouts who have been difficult. Although I am somewhat empathetic to the Biden administration and Democrats because, uh, again, the intransigence of the Republican Party has forced Democrats to have a debate within themselves. So it's been effective, Charlie. The challenge Democrats have is Republicans get away with being nihilistic and destructive and they get political points for it. And so that's been, but that that's my critique of the Biden administration is they can't keep acting like things are normal and they can play the game by the way it's been played in the past. They have a Republican party that will do everything to destroy them and take down the country with them. And, but I couldn't agree with you more. Like they got to push off the problems. They have to understand, the country has to understand why we're debating with cinema and mansion because the Republican Party has absolutely refused to even negotiate at all on, on the Build Back Better agenda. So that's been a big challenge they have. But but I, I think it's, it's tough. With the Democratic Party, look, we're a diverse coalition. It's very hard to keep our coalition together. But in, in defense of progressives, we, we have the vast majority of the caucus and the people who aren't willing to compromise actually are a small group of centrist corporate, not even centrist, corporate Democrats who have, you know, very suspic- their motives are very suspicious. And, and that's been a big challenge. But the Republican Party put us in this bind because of their nihilism. So that, that, that it is a tough spot. I mean, I mean, that big mm-hmm. but they have to deal with the cards that are dealt and they have to find a way to win with the cards they have. 
we can have a whole panel on that last thing you just said about the motors being suspicious, but I want to transition back to January 6th. Joe Biden's presidency began two weeks after one of the darkest days in the nation's history, one week after his predecessor made history in facing impeachment for the second time in one term. And, you know, I want to just think about like, how is the Biden administration handling the response to this insurrection, you've all touched on it in different ways, but in some ways you look at Washington and it's as if Washington forgot. And then in some ways, the January 6th commission is continuing on. Uh, so so what does this look like from the Biden White House's perspective and what advice would any of you give to him? Um, I'll start with Juan and then Professor Alfaro, just kind of looking at how they're responding. It still remains to be seen what they ultimately accomplish. I think that there are a couple things to look at um, that are going to be key what Merrick Garland does and the Department of Justice and the ongoing investigation and the outcome of that investigation, whether Democrats actually hold these folks accountable for the crimes that they've committed. I think you also have to look at the sweat equity and that the administration puts into the Freedom to Vote Act. There are a couple of provisions in there that deal with election subversion. And then, you know, Angus King likely introduced a bill in a couple of weeks to deal with voter intimidation how much the administration engages in trying to get those bills passed, whether they are successful in ultimately getting something done, whether they commit the same mistake that we've seen in the past couple weeks and solely focused on the intra-party debate on whether Manchin actually allows any of those bills to move forward, um, similar to what Ben alluded. So I think it remains to be seen, but I think what Merrick Garland's role is going to be in the next couple of weeks and months and um, holding some of these folks accountable is really going to be the measure on whether Democrats were successful in actually holding Republicans accountable for some of these crimes, or if we are on a speedboat heading directly into a constitutional crisis where the House doesn't decide to certify the elections in years to come. You're looking ahead to my next question. Um, Professor Alfaro, your thoughts? I'm going to focus on President Biden and really contrast him with the truly masterful job that former President Trump did with the previous investigations. So if you think about the Russia and Ukraine investigations that Congress conducted during his term as president. And I think one of the things that President Biden has tried to do is to really distance himself from being engaged as a partisan in this particular kind of investigation post January 6th. I think, first of all, as a matter of just, you know, his personal background and his history as a former member of the Senate, you know, I think he has a sense of separation of powers and things that the former president did not. But I think also it behooves him to do that because it denies Donald Trump, to use something that Ben was just talking about for President Biden, it denies Donald Trump and the folks who are kind of part of that cadre a boogeyman. Um, So if you remember those two investigations during the Trump administration, Adam Schiff became Donald Trump's boogeyman. And those processes were talked about a lot, but also dismissed a lot because they were seen as partisan. To the degree President Biden stays out of kind of what's happening and doesn't kind of say this needs to happen in this particular way. I'm going to let Congress do its job. I think that actually denies Donald Trump the boogeyman that he uses often to actually get the support that he wants on particular issues. And so he's not been able to do that in the same way. Like he's picked on, of course, Mary Cheney and, you know, Adam Kinziger. And so he's done some retaliation, don't get me wrong. But this idea that he has, he can kind of locate all of his kind of steam in a particular boogeyman 
has really allowed the January 6th commission to take this seriously. The challenge, though, of course, is that media coverage, right? So you're not getting kind of the spikes in media coverage and media attention to it consistently that you would have had, you know, two or three years ago when Congress was doing its Russia um, and Ukraine election uh, investigation. And so I think the American public starts to forget unless something major happens, right? Unless Steve Bannon really is held in contempt of Congress, you know, and others are made to pay the price. I think the American voters, you know, end up saying, this is something that's kind of bumping along, but, you know, it's not really central to how we think about our choice in next November. Charlie, I'll turn this next one to you. I'm thinking, I wonder if it would have been different had Nancy Pelosi allowed the House Republican choices for that select committee to stand. Could this be a different moment for how people are viewing uh, the examination of the insurrection? And do you agree with what's been said so far? I do, largely. Look, um, the Republicans were never going to cooperate. They were going to try to sabotage the committee. One of the ironies, of course, is that she gave she gave up a lot during the negotiations to have a bipartisan commission. So a lot of these complaints from the Republicans are bogus. But, you know, just step back for a moment. Look, I, I happen to believe that we face an existential threat to democracy and the real possibility of a constitutional crisis. And I do think that both political parties should act like it. And this is just one of the, you know, when I talk about the circular firing squad among Democrats, and part of it is in the back of my mind, I'm saying, if this is an existential crisis, you should act like it and understand the importance that you have one job. Do not screw this up. Do not let these people back into power. The one thing I would disagree with is the kind of going soft because you don't want to give the Republicans or Donald Trump a boogeyman. Here's the reality check. They will always have a boogeyman. If they don't have one, they will create one. This is their brand. This is something they are very, very good at. So I think in any ways, trying to distance yourself from this attack on democracy or slow roll it in any way isn't going to get you any points. And I agree with the point about Merrick Garland. I appreciate Merrick Garland's desire to depoliticize the Department of Justice. He's a man of great principle. And in a normal political moment would be the perfect attorney general. But as we've been discussing, this is not the normal political moment. And I do think that there needs to be a real sense of urgency. And we are finding virtually every single day how much worse this was than we thought. I mean, we are sitting here on a Friday in November And we are just now hearing Donald Trump basically defending rioters at the Capitol who chanted, hang Mike Pence. Now, again, on Earth 2.0, this would be a massive news story. Instead, it's just Friday. But uh, in terms of holding Republicans accountable, they need to be pressed on this. Are they the party that is okay with this? Are they a party that is going to support someone who was prepared to use every lever of power to overthrow a presidential election? And going ahead, I support all of those election bills that were mentioned, but I think the crucial one is going to be the amending of the Electoral Vote Count Act or the electoral, uh, whatever the 1880s legislation was that might have permitted the vice president of the United States to overturn the election. At some point, there needs to be a recognition how fragile our democratic uh, process is and how close we came to a constitutional crisis and the fact that we are slow rolling in real time and broad daylight toward another one in 2025. And I wish that uh, the Democrats in Congress had a sense of urgency about the real nature of that threat. 
Um, and for anyone who's uh, not familiar, has been too turned into the, the Warshaw Conference today to see the story that Charlie is referring to. This is um, some audio that Jonathan Carl of ABC um, is releasing as part of a new book, examining with an interview with, with former President Trump. How about, can I get a show of hands from this esteemed panel? How many of you believe that our democracy itself is in danger right now? And, you know, obviously this is a matter of degrees. And I guess the, the next question is just, is it unfixable? Is this something that if Democrats do, you know, what Charlie is just talking about or really calling attention to this crisis and trying to ward it off, like, is that possible or are we just too far down the line? The capital has been breached and it's just going to get worse. Go ahead, Ben. Well, I'll venture. I mean, look, it's, it's a very challenging situation, an unprecedented one and delicate and complicated. But I, you know, I read uh, a great uh, study about game theory, applying game theory to the situation. And if your opponent consistently breaks the rules, the only way you get them to get back in line and play by the rules is if you break the rules yourself. If the other side breaks the rules and gets away with it and you keep playing by the same rules, they're going to keep winning and they're going to keep breaking the rules. And so, I, again, it's, it's hard. How do you translate that into the situation we're in? You have to find a way to do some aggressive, bold things. And I don't quite know what the specifics are, but that's what the Biden administration and Democrats have to think about. Like, how can we, like the Voting Rights Act, getting rid of the filibuster to pass legislation with a majority to stop a, you know, it's essentially attempted overthrow of our government. I mean, that's what's at stake here. And so, you know, Biden is so, he's been in the Senate for decades, right? He's kind of a, he respects tradition, but it's like the, those norms don't work. The good old days of, of compromise and, and, and deal making in the Senate are long over. Right. Uh, when you have a party, the Republican Party, that's willing to overthrow the government to, to stay in power. So I think that's the, the I don't in turn talk about is he the man to meet the moment? And I, that's my that's my concern, the primary watching Biden campaign. And I, my concern is like, you know, this country is very polarized and we're war with a radicalized Republican Party. You got to follow the rule of game theory. You got to kind of break the rules yourself to keep them, get them back in line or hold them accountable and, and, and have them pay a huge political price for breaking the rules themselves, right? And that's what they keep getting away with it. They do these things, outlanders things, Republicans do, on January 6th, and then it kind of goes away. And then they're not held accountable for essentially insurrection, trying to overthrow the government. So that's, that's I don't have a clear, like a 10-step math approach to plan to, to make it happen, but that's the thinking that has to go behind. It, it can't be constricted with kind of traditional normalized thinking on how to deal with, with the radicalized Republican Party. As the, the member of the media here, I'll sort of take a moment to push blame on the media, too. If the media takes a moment and, and allows this all to be normalized, um, that sort of has the country moving on in one way in a way that it shouldn't. Um, and that's something I personally would like to see the media change a little bit. I'm going to turn to Professor Alfaro for a moment to talk about the Kamala Harris Research Project, um, which is analyzing her tenure as the first woman of color to take that office. So talk to us about what you've learned from her tenure so far and how big of a role she's playing in the Biden administration, given these enormous challenges and um, sort of calls to action that we're all laying out here for President Biden. First, let me just talk a little bit about what the Kamala Harris Project is. So the Kamala Harris Project is a nonpartisan group of research scholars from across the country um, who are all pooling our resources 
to actually study this entire term, right? So we started back on January 20th um, and have really been moving forward with trying to look at very different uh, research aspects of what she's doing. Um, So we have folks who are working on kind of the media narratives of how she's being covered in the media, looking at the quantity of media coverage, the tone of the media coverage, the content of the media coverage, you know, again, building on research that's been done about women in politics in the past, Um, And then we have a set of folks who are looking like me at different policy arenas that she's been assigned. Um, And so, so far, what we found is that, you know, she does have a portfolio that's not unlike other vice presidents. Right. So, of course, they serve at the pleasure of the president. The president, you know, aside from the National Space Council, pretty much gets to, you know, the president gets to pick and choose what that person is going to do. Right. Um, And so, you know, she's been the point person on a number of different things, uh, specifically on the push factors of immigration in the Northern Triangle. That's one that's kind of gotten the most coverage, Um, but also in some of these naughtier issues that we've been talking about on this panel, right? Um, And I think it's been a real challenge to figure out how she can be the most effective surrogate, right? On the one hand, she's been doing her job. She's cast so many tie-breaking votes. On the other hand, you know, it doesn't even get to a tie-breaking vote on some of the things that she's been assigned, like voting rights, right? So a lot of what we've been talking about. Um, I think the last thing I'll say just about her and her capacity to be a surrogate is, of course, we are in this hyper-polarized context. And so the fact that she can be mobilized in some communities to kind of get people energized about the Biden agenda um, definitely plays in the opposite way um, in, you know, the other side. Um, And so I think, you know, as a woman of color who's serving, she is really walking a fine line. And then the last, you know, kind of idea about her is, of course, there is a second gentleman, right? And so how do we think about that relationship as well as being, you know, kind of separate from what Jill Biden did, you know, in the Obama administration, you know, or, you know, Karen Pence in the Trump administration. I think that's another place where, again, there might be some efforts at innovation, but it's kind of difficult in this polarized context to really talk about it holistically. Fascinating stuff. Now, I think back uh, to 2016 and the night Trump was elected and I you know, was running the, the election coverage online for the LA Times. And, you know, at the same moment, um, California made history in itself in electing Kamala Harris. Um, and I'd wanted to just talk about like what what that looked like um, for you, Juan, as campaign manager then. And, and how do you assess um, what's been happening since? Yeah, um, you know, it was a really interesting night. Uh, you know, we we were in downtown L.A., you know, I was on the phone with now the vice president at the time when we began to saw the, those states coming in and you can pretty much see the pattern and what was likely to happen. And you have here kind of a, a moment of incredible, significant history in California alone, electing Kamala to the Senate while this kind of national narrative is beginning to play out. And you realize two things. One is we instantly have to kind of regroup and rewrite her speech. She's talked about it. My partners talked about kind of that moment and, and what it really was like, but her coming out and being one of the first national Democrats in that moment talking about the needing to fight. And you could hear those words in that moment, but could not fully appreciate the extent of how, frankly, traumatic those next four years were really for, I think, all of us and, and, and what it was to really kind of be in that moment. So I think we spent a lot of time reflecting, but you, you do realize that, you know, we are here years later. 
um, and we continue to have the same conversation that these elections are of increasing importance and every subsequent election feels like democracy is on the verge of potentially collapsing. And I think the theme of what she said that night, you know, Democrats really needing to get into the fight and making it clear what they stand for, building that scaffolding was true that night and years later is increasingly becoming um, something that is still perceived a a challenge for Democrats and communicating to the overall electorate that um, we got to get out to vote. Um, So that I think is is just something that I think I think about a lot um, and it's ethereal in its nature. All right. Now we are going to turn to some audience questions. And the first one is, what is your advice to the Biden administration on how to deal with the chaos that is brought by Senators Cinema and Manchin? And I think um, I'll, I'll turn to Ben on that one. What advice would you give Biden? I'm of a school, political school where good to be aggressive, right? If you're on offense, you're, uh, you're scoring points. Basically, it's a boxing match and either you're, you're punching someone in the face or getting punched in the face. And so I think they should be in Arizona and West Virginia telling voters in Arizona and West Virginia all these popular things that their senators are against. Uh, I mean, for example, West Virginia, you know, we did some research in West Virginia, in both those states. And honestly, West Virginia is a working class state and no, very few people are going to pay any more in taxes to pay for this bill. And they would get a lot of the benefits, uh, you know, whether it's, 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 and it, it, we'll see what's in the final bill, but what's been proposed is a lot of benefits for working class West Virginians. Uh, and I, you know, if I were Joe Biden, I'd be on a campaign trail in Arizona, West Virginia, say, Hey, you know, West Virginia, Hey, Arizona's, guess what? You know, there are all these good things that you're going to benefit from and only the wealthy are going to pay more to help pay for it. You won't pay a penny more and you're going to get potentially a bill that you lower prescription drug costs if you're a senior Medicare, high quality early child education uh, and all these great benefits. So that's what I would do uh, to kind of put the pressure on them, but not have the progressive activists be leading the charge, but the president uh, and honestly employ Kamala Harris and the vice president could do this too. So that's what I think they're going to do full court press on, on the two of them uh, in a more aggressive way and let voters know it's Republicans who are making this so difficult, right? So the Republicans are against this. So do Joe Manchin and Chris Sinema want to align themselves with the radicalized extreme Republican party or do they want to align themselves with every party that's for a very popular agenda. So I think that's what my advice to the Biden administration is to do a full court press on, you know, in an aggressive way and be, get on the campaign trail and advocate for this for, for his agenda. Others have a similar or different advice you'd like to weigh in, anyone? I would have different advice to that. First of all, keep in mind how little uh, leverage Democrats have on Joe Manchin. He, he represents a state that I think Donald Trump won by 60 points. You're not going to replace Joe Manchin with an Elizabeth Warren type, you're more likely to get a, you know, Bubba McTrump uh, in the Senate, somebody like, like like that. So I think that people aren't going to like this particular advice, but at a certain extent, what they need to do is get what you can from those senators, pass the bill, and then pivot to the midterms and point the finger at the Republicans for obstructing. Say, okay, you know what? This is what's at stake. The future of the child tax credit is at stake. The future of whether you're going to get paid medical leave in the future. That's going to be at stake. You want to continue these policies. You're going to have to support us because every single Republican, with some exceptions, have voted against these measures. Because the longer they spend time trying to pressure Joe Manchin, which won't work because he represents West freaking Virginia, the less time they will have to making the case to the American people. I mean, I, I think t- the clock is running. Biden needs to do two things, and Ben has mentioned them. He needs to explain in great detail 
And his surrogates need to explain what is in that bill, how it will affect people's lives. And number two, he needs to hold the Republicans accountable. And so every month he spends training fire on fellow Democrats is time lost doing what he absolutely has to do between now and a year from now. Very interesting. Now, I'm going to turn to Professor Alfaro for a second to talk about the courts, um, which is something we've all sort of touched on but didn't dive into. Uh, you had, obviously, this this huge effort in Texas uh, to restrict reproductive rights. Um, this is tied up in these um, unbelievable court battles that, uh, one, demonstrate how much Trump did to reshape the court system um, over just a few years. And, and when I say Trump, I, I mean Mitch McConnell, um, you know, aiding, aiding President Trump. And that's something that, you know, no matter what happens, that that's going to be one of his big legacies. Um, so I just wonder, you know, how you view Biden's relationship with the court system with these major things uh, right, right there. Biden's relationship with the court system is going to be much more like Obama's relationship with the court system um, in the sense that being able to get appointees through is going to be very difficult. Um, I think the only saving grace, and it's a very tiny saving grace, let me be clear, and I don't know whether Juan would agree with me on this, but you know, one of the things that we talked about a lot in California around the recall election was the impact of what happened in Texas, right? And so I'm wondering whether or not, you know, the fact that these kinds of things are starting in the courts, right, and people are kind of paying attention to them across different states, right, can be used on a national scale to draw that contrast, to really say, you know, hey, you know, if you don't vote in this state or in this congressional district, you know, to kind of keep Democrats in the majority, you know, you're going to get someone who doesn't like mask mandates, someone who is fine with as you know getting herd immunity through death as opposed to some other ways, right? And someone who is going to you know take away women's rights to choose, right? So, so I think you know Biden is certainly trying to focus on what can we do that would actually help, right? So he's he doesn't have Merrick Garland, but Merrick Garland has agreed to fight the abortion rights case on behalf of the Justice Department. Um, but I think the other piece is. As these states are taking more and more radical positions, it heightens the opportunity for Biden to draw the contrast that Charlie has been talking about in so many different ways, right? Um, So I do think that there's an opportunity here for him to kind of run against the courts, for lack of a better way of saying it, whenever some of those decisions are coming up. Interesting. Um, Juan, did you want to jump in? Yeah, no, I completely agree. You know, one of the things Professor Alforo spoke at the beginning of this conversation was looking at the public health outcome map of what was happening in COVID and what you saw in the differences between red states and blue states. I think as you begin to see more extreme positions happening in some of these red states, you're also going to see not only negative public health outcomes, but looking at how their economies are doing and the further erosion of the middle class within those states. I think as long as Democrats are able to clearly articulate the differences in policies and how these Republican red states have contributed to worse health outcomes, not just for Republicans, but for independents and for Democrats across the board, then you really have an opportunity to make choice a front and center issue or predict um, negative consequences that uh, that may happen because you can also very likely predict what a vote count is going to be in the Supreme Court. Um, So looking across the corner and how that may impact the midterm is going to be key for Democrats as well. 
have some questions from the audience. They're two sort of similar questions, so I'm going to combine them a little bit. So looking at how Biden is really the exception to Democrats, right? He's not what is looked at as like the more standard, more progressive Democrat of the party is trending. So why do you think Trump's message resonates with so many people and what can Democrats learn from that? And then secondarily, like how do Democrats appeal to that center? Sort of like where where the country is torn in between uh, this ideological spectrum and how the Democrats in leadership are handling this. Charlie, jump in, please. Well, Ben would would give a better answer than, than all of this. I mean, I think I think that the uh, Virginia results were kind of a shock to the system for Democrats, and they need to uh, need to engage in some introspection and ask themselves the tough questions: Have we forgotten how to talk to our voters? There was this once a time when blue collar voters were the, the the heart and soul of the Democratic Party. When Democrats were com- more competitive in rural areas, what's happened with the message? What is not getting through? And this, again, is the, the question of uh, have Democrats spent too much time talking to one another or allowing their debates to be taken over by the elites as opposed to talking to the key voters on issues like inflation, on crime, on education, on the border? Are there ways of expressing their position in, you know, that would be persuasive? And I think this is, again, part of the problem that the Democrats have. You said that Joe Biden is kind of an outlier. The reality is, is that, again, most polls would suggest that most Democratic voters, in fact, are pragmatic, are centrist. You've seen that, particularly among African-American voters who um, turned out to be you know, far more centrist than I think people believe. What you do have, though, is I think perhaps uh, the, you know, the educated elite who dominate, the, who dominate Twitter and the, who are, you see on, on, on cable television and tend to staff the campaigns tend to be somewhat more progressive than your average voter. But but I'd be interested in hearing some thoughts about what happened, for example, in, in New York City. I thought that primary in New York was extremely interesting, where Eric Adams was able to win a very, very solid election by appealing to moderate voters. And, and I think that this is something, again, to come back to, to realize that the, the Democratic Party is not necessarily is not only reflected by the squad as much as by future leaders like Eric Adams. I don't know. Here in California, it might be a little different. But uh, Ben, please weigh in here. You know, this is obviously a debate that's raging both nationally and within the Democratic Party. But I, look, I, I you know I worked for Bernie Sanders in 2016, and then again in 2020. And you know, the one lesson that I feel got lost uh, in the success of Bernie in both elections, especially in 2016, where we took someone who was at zero percent of the poll and got him to the brink of the nomination, is the success of his campaign was not that he was a left-wing candidate. It was that he had a clear economic message of how he was going to help working people. His core message was an economic message, taking on a rigged economy propped up by corrupt political systems. So tapping into voters' frustrations with the economy and with the politics and status quo and not delivering results for working day people. And with Eric Adams, we, we similar you know, message. I mean, you know, ideologically, he's a bit more moderate than Bernie, but he, we didn't run an ideological campaign. We ran a, a campaign focused on his personal, Eric's personal story, which is a compelling, it's a progressive story. He overcame poverty, become, you know, a competitive candidate for mayor. He was a New Yorker, native New Yorker from Brooklyn, got beat up by police to became a police officer to reform the, the criminal justice system, the police department. So that's a progressive message. He near homeless. He wants to, you know, address homeless affordability. So he's got some fundamentally progressive positions and kind of the foundation of his, candidate. his story is is progressive by overcoming poverty, being a person of color to overcome some uh, systemic racism. 
Uh, but his approach, his style was more, hey, I'm going to solve problems, be pragmatic, and I'm going to solve problems for everyday people. And I think that's what, so I, I disagree with this whole aggressive versus moderate debate within the party, because the success of the Bernie campaign, the reason Bernie was able to put a broad coalition together, uh, among a lot of working people, but Eric Adams put a multiracial working class coalition together, as did Bernie, right? Bernie did one Latinos in 2020. Joe Biden with Latinos consistently, and honestly, that's one reason. Biden's struggling with younger voters and Latinos right now. They were skeptical of him in the primary, so they weren't loyal to him from the beginning, and he's, he's struggled with them since. So, so I think from the Democratic Party's perspective, it's providing a very clear choice, as opposed to having a debate internally between the progressive wing and the moderate wing. Uh, or the corporate wing. It's Democrats want to help improve the lives of working families, and Republicans are for tax cuts for the rich and protecting big corporations. And, and Democrats want to invest in kids and help seniors pay for their rising gas bills, energy bills, and prescription drug prices. And uh, Republicans are in the pocket of big pharma. Right? We have to make it a very clear contrast. In that regard, we can kind of hold our coalition, the Democrat coalition, together more strongly and make it a more comparative context between what the Republicans are offering or not offering the country the Democratic Party is. So in a, sort of an extension of that, that question, someone asks about you know, the fact that progressive members sit in safe districts, conservative members sit in safe districts. You know, this is sort of a product of, of gerrymandering, uh, sort of a, a question after like my political nerd heart here. Um, in fact, any students listening, I'm teaching a class about redistricting and how it's going to affect the congressional midterms in the spring. Juror 448, feel free to sign up. And I just wonder, how do we keep politicking to extremes instead of the middle? And and the person asks, you know, is it because the system is rigged to reward those extremes via primaries and safe districts and party support instead of rewarding bipartisanship, um, which I think is you know something that we've talked quite quite a bit about today. Um, Charlie, you're nodding and anyone feel yeah. free to jump in. This is something I've changed my mind about, that I, I do think the system is rigged and all of the incentives right now are uh, toward people being um, as extreme as possible. Uh, the vast majority of members of Congress don't have to worry about uh, the politics of persuasion. They don't have to worry about uh, centrist voters or voters across the aisle. Um, they are held hostage by their own base, which is often the most extreme elements of their base because there are so few competitive districts. So that's a real concern. My only caveat is that the way Americans are sorting themselves out geographically makes it harder and harder to draw the lines. I mean, Wisconsin is really kind of a model for extreme gerrymandering, but we're also kind of a model for why it's so hard to fix it, because the Democratic voters are so heavily geographically concentrated in Milwaukee and in Madison. It's very hard to draw these lines. But yeah, there's at some point, this is something we're going to have to come to grips with. As I said, it's not just uh, the the lines that are how they are drawn. It's also just all of the other incentives in terms of media, in terms of grassroots fundraising, all of which reward extreme and outrageous behavior and will often punish bipartisanship. Just one last comment. I mean, it it says a great deal right now that all of the passion um, in the Republican Party It seems to be directed toward punishing the 13 Republicans that voted for the bipartisan infrastructure bill, along with 19 senators, whereas someone like a Paul Gosar, who is tweeting out uh, death threats against, uh, uh, you know, fellow members of Congress, are members in good standing of the House Republican Conference. You can be Marjorie Taylor Greene and or Paul Gosar and put out the worst conspiracy theories or racist memes, and nothing will happen to you. In fact, you will probably become a rock star with the grassroots. Whereas if you cross party lines and you vote for uh, a legislation that builds 
roads and bridges and broadband, you might be putting your political future at risk. And, and that tells you how dysfunctional our political world is right now, or at least how dysfunctional the Republican Party is right now. And I'll add the uh, media rewards sort of all those extremes as well, right? Exactly. They get more attention. That's something that President Trump learned very well. So Ben, I'm going to have you do just a quick add to that. We have three minutes left and there's one closing question I want to get to. So go ahead, Ben. The challenge is, I mean, Christine, you fell into the trap of what the media often does is the both sidesism. But bipartisanship, right? But when you have a radicalized Republican Party, I mean, they've moved to this, you know, so you can't have, it's not a balanced playing field, right? They've become radicalized to the point where, as Charlie mentioned, they're trying to drive out 13 people who voted for good things that the voters want. Uh, you have no senators in the U.S. Senate who will even consider voting for the Build Back Better agenda. So, uh, but, but the gerrymandering is even extreme. You have states like Ohio, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania, where Democrats are competitive statewide, winning, you know, basically 50, 48, 50% of the vote sometimes. But they represent less than a third of members of Congress in state legislature. That is radical partisan uh, gerrymandering by Republicans. This is the Republican Party that that is putting politics above the, the, the country, and it's it's very difficult. The Democratic Party trying to play normal politics when you have a radicalized Republican Party that puts politics above everything else. And this plays into what the last question will be, because I will just say, you know, one of the reasons the lines are drawn as they are happens at the very basic level, right? These are state legislatures that are doing this and elections matter. And, you know, you watch that Tea Party election in 2010 that decimated Democratic ranks in state houses across the country. And that affects how the lines are drawn. So it's just something to keep in mind. The question is, um, you know, you raised your hands when asked if you felt democracy is in danger. What gives you hope that this hyperpartisanship can be abated, maybe even reversed? How can we, the people, help save the republic, um, which I love ending on such a hopeful note. So I'm going to turn to Professor Alfaro on that and others can feel free to weigh in. Absolutely. Um, and I have to put on my chair hat just for two seconds to say that my colleague Christian Gross um, actually does a lot of research on redistricting um, and is helping in California. And one of our alums, uh, Sarah Sadwani, is one, is sits on our California Redistricting Commission. Um, so I just want to make sure that we talk about that. Uh, but I do want to say um, two things with regard to what gives me hope. Um, I think the first is the citizen redistricting commissions, because I do think the trend towards them, I know they're not nearly as ubiquitous as they need to be, but I think citizens are really getting to be clear and we're starting to see that the research is they can have an impact on some of these things. Um, of course, we're grappling with this in Los Angeles right now with the city council and what they're doing. So I don't want to say that it's a perfect solution, but this idea that you would have an engaged group of citizens and a process by which you've selected them and vetted them really does help us think through having a more participatory redistricting process. I think the second thing that's giving me hope is that I think there are a lot more people who are paying attention now. And I think one of the things that we've disinvested in, which is one of the reasons why we have this threat to democracy over the past three generations, I would not just say it's the past 10 years, it's three generations, we have disinvested in civic education such that people don't even really understand right? Like what's going on? Like the amount of voter education we have to do about what a recall election is, the amount of voter education that we have to do about, well, no, actually the vice president cannot set aside, right? The results um, is bo both part of a media campaign that's, you know, really loud, but it's also people don't know what the basics are. So they're willing to believe just about everything. 
All right. That's an excellent way to end this. I'm really grateful to everyone. Professor Ange Maria Hancock Alfaro, Juan Rodriguez, Charlie Sykes, Ben Tolchin. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to USC for hosting this amazing Warshaw conference and to all the organizers and to incredible audience with great questions. Thanks to everyone and have an awesome day. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.